Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 44 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Barney and Angelo. Angelo, first things first, how are you tonight? Doing pretty good. It's starting to rain here. Have an ear. And uh, it's warming up, so hopefully Happy spring comes soon. Me too. I am done with this yo-yo weather because we live in Canada and these things shouldn't happen. It should just be frozen for a good uh, three to four months and then it thaws out. But yet it's supposed to be like 10 degrees Celsius on uh, later this week. So I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. For our American friends, it's like what in the 50s? Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's, it's like it's like balmy for February. Uh, yeah. And uh, everything is like flooding now. So there we go, and uh, we just turn to our tech and paranormal stories to keep us cozy and warm. <laughs> or like satiated, because we don't know what to expect weather-wise anymore. No, not... So February and March are the craziest times where we'll be able to get some rain and warmth, like now it's kind of warm, or uh, what, two feet of snow sometimes. Either, or like the uh, middle of March last year with that gigantic snowstorm that kind of paralyzed the city. Yeah, and and just to give you an idea, to paralyze like Montreal with snow takes a lot of snow. Yes, yes. Uh, we don't cancel things very easily around here. No, and lots of things got canceled that day. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's the way things are, right, uh, around here in this part of the world, and uh, we're lucky to live in a. Uh, uh, I'd call this a democracy, but I really question the validity of that statement. But that's okay because some places. Uh, Aren't democracies, and clearly I'm reaching for the first story of the night a little bit, but that's okay. So we're going to talk about the Huawei phone. Well, I was actually going to make a joke about how the cold weather allowed me to skate past your stupid Happy New Year thing, but let's go <laughs> to the next story. <laughs> I literally was like, how do I tie cold weather into uh, phones that may spy on you? And uh, the link isn't so clear when you really think about it. No, but the link that is clear is the link to the story we'll give you about The Verge telling us not to use... Uh, Hawaii phones apparently says the heads of the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA. So that's a lot of people telling you not to use these phones. Yeah, these governmental agencies rarely agree on anything. So for them to come together on this means that they must have some kind of info that they're probably not sharing with the public about um, this tech, I'd imagine. Well, apparently the companies in this story by um, James Vincent from The Verge talks about how both um, these uh, Chinese tech giants, Hawaii and ZTE, or ZTE, I don't know which uh, nomenclature to use for the letter Z or Z. Apparently, they're kind of like in the pockets of uh, the Chinese government, and they're not so sure we should be using them in, uh, well, the U.S. for sure, North America. They're for sale here. They're not exactly popular, but... In China, they're pretty much the most popular smartphones. I also love the idea that right now in the States, they're looking to uh, ban or there'd be a bill banning government employees from using these phones. Well, because they're worried about uh, state secrets getting out to the Chinese government. Yeah, but they're going to come out anyways either way, right? I don't I don't think that... I, don't get me wrong. Like, Do I think that these phones are probably spying on people? One, absolutely. Two, I, the number of people in U.S. government using these phones is probably very minuscule. Well, nobody uses these phones. Everybody just buys Android phones or iPhones. Uh, these are Android phones, but they're not made by the popular Android phone-making companies in the U.S., which is basically like Samsung at this point. Here's what I want to ask you. Uh, what is more popular, the Hawaii ZTE phones or the Essential phone? Oh, in the U.S.? Yeah. <laughs> it's a toss-up. That poor Essential phone. D-O-A, my friend. Yeah, it's sad. 
uh, I mean, the, the thing is that I do believe that uh, there is some use in the states of this film, but I, I don't believe that it's as widespread as um, most people would like to believe, though. It's interesting that all of these um, heads of agencies have come together and said this. Um, do you think it had like the a backfire effect almost of like more people wanting to use these phones? They're actually relatively well reviewed. I don't know about the, the ZTEs, but um, the Hawaii phones are actually decently reviewed. I've seen them reviewed on a few sites and they seem like decent phones, I guess. They're not, uh, I don't know if you'd be shocked by this, but they're not my cup of tea exactly. Hmm. I I don't think they'll gain much popularity. People don't go to the FBI for their tech reviews. They'll they'll stick to The Verge and uh, Ars Technica and sites such as those. A not Business Insider though? Ugh, Business Insider. No, Business Insider is in the uh, business of making sure that people uh, don't buy Apple products to tank the stock. Um, oh. <laughs> they're the doomsday sayers of all things related to Apple. How do they look at Android stuff though? Like I'm, I'm not too, like I don't visit business insider on a regular basis. So I'm curious from your point of view, if you've seen anything, how do they deal uh, with anything related to Android? Are they uh, a little more positive in their coverage? Do you think? I don't know. I actually don't go to business insider ever unless it's linked to, to make fun of them because how stupid their articles are. Oh, right. Okay. I see. How it is. They're not one of my, uh, my low, my daily visits and my RSS feed. I actually use an RSS feed. Uh, unlike most people in the Shout world. Shout out to 2008. Yeah. So, but our, uh, RSS readers are great. Yeah, I guess. Let's yeah, do a whole episode on that. I'm Perfect. sure we'll lose <laughs> listeners very quickly. It would just be you reading off the titles of, uh, articles that you find interesting over the last like six months. That sounds like a great idea. We should combine that with my six-hour Nostradamus special and just make a like a seventeen-hour like extravaganza. That's just a marathon of of wills. I, I think that episode would bust through our uh, quota for uh, how much we can upload for one episode. I think we'll have to break it up into seven parts. Oh yeah, we would do it per hour for sure. Okay, so two hours per seven parts. Anyways, I'll talk to you offline about this exciting venture. If anyone else wants to get interested and uh, join us in our Nostradamus um, article reading extravaganza, please tweet at us at double underscore density. You can email us at double density podcast at gmail.com. As some people have done this week, we might, uh, we might have a special guest coming up in a couple of weeks, but we won't be talking about that uh, as of yet. It's very preliminary, but uh, we might get into that uh, later on. Yeah, for sure. But going from uh, phones that spy to advertisements that become a nuisance and sort of spy on you as well. Uh, Google Chrome is basically adding ad blocking uh, baked into the actual browser. So the thing about this, though, is that it's not like the classical ad blocker that blocks all ads at all times. It's an ethical ad blocker, right? (laughs) Well, uh, it's not really in Google's best interest to block ads since uh, I don't know if most people realize this. Google isn't really a search company. They started with search, but they're pretty much just an ad company. That's right. As someone who works with AdWords all day, I can definitely attest to that. You work with AdWords all day. What is that exactly? Explain it to to me like I'm dumb. Sure. So AdWords are things that pop up when you do search results, right? So anything that's tagged as an ad. So um, I write taglines, URLs, and things like that that attract people to my business on related searches in the field that I work in. Yeah, sounds pretty interesting to me. It is kind of cool. I'm not going to deny that. It's a lot (laughs) of fun to see what works and what doesn't work. So uh, definitely one of the better parts of my job. Yeah, see, it's uh, like I said, I explained it to me like I'm dumb. I'm really dumb about that type, that whole aspect of the internet, the whole ad thing. I don't, I, I guess I understand how people make money off of that, but I just can't understand how much money Google makes off of this. It's insane. It's massive. It really is massive. For example, Apple makes all their money off products. 
I understand that they sell products at a markup. They they make these products. They they cost a lot of money to make, but they sell them at what triple, quadruple how much they actually cost to make. Whereas Google, Google and Facebook and all that stuff, they kind of make the money off your data uh, and the ads, and that's the and a lot of sites as well make money off ads. Uh, And these ad blockers are kind of sort of. Um, do you think it's morally wrong to be using ad blockers? Like you said at the beginning, this Google Chrome ad blocking is what a little morally neutral. Yeah, I'm on the fence about ad blockers um, because a lot of okay. So, for example, like like take YouTube, right? So, ad revenue is generated through ads uh, watched by viewers uh, for content creators. But if you take away the ad blocking portion of it, then uh, sorry, if you take away the ad gen. Uh, revenue generating portion of it, then they're not really making any money off of their videos, despite the views, right? So I kind of have a bit of a problem there for content creators specifically in that context. The thing with the ad blocker, for example, I use an ad blocker called Ghostery. um, And I do leave on a lot of ads because if you don't, it's not, it's not actually for ads. It's, it's a tracker and ad blocker. And I leave some trackers on that are completely benign. Uh, but some things are really invasive and I find them annoying. The thing is, is it doesn't block YouTube ads at all, uh, which I'm totally for. I, you know, we get YouTube for free. I'm totally for playing ads before somebody's content because, well, that's how they make their money. And um, that's the thing. The ads I try to block are the ones, you ever come across the, the ads that just completely block your page for no reason? I've definitely come across a lot, a lot of those and the more annoying or like equally annoying cousin of that is the, uh, the, the ad with sound that just cuts through everything. Oh, those are really bad. And, uh, both Chrome and uh, Safari block those right away. Uh, in terms of telling you which tab you're on, that's making sound. You can easily go and block the sound directly in the tab, which is great because those things are the worst. Do you miss the pop-up ad? Cause remember in the days of yore, that was like the big thing. Yeah, and now uh, blocking pop-ups is actually a hindrance in a lot of things. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I worked at my university's open house recently, and we set up an uh, an application clinic. And to set that up, we had to go through each browser setting and turn off pop-up blocking because uh, the payment method for our application brings up a pop-up. We had, what, like 20 or 30 Macs in a room, and we had to go on all three browsers on the Mac. So we would use uh, Safari, uh, Firefox, and Chrome and change the pop-up blocking on all of them. I'll tell you, Safari and Firefox, really easy to reach the pop-up blocking. Chrome, not easy at all. Let's get, well, first things first. They let you into a room filled with Macs. You must have been filled with glee. That's the only reason I work the open house is that they let me into a room with full of Macs. Not a huge surprise there. But secondly, uh, let's get malicious for a sec, okay? You ready for this? I'm always ready. All right, what if Google is doing this in order to standardize and prioritize its own set of AdWords and the way it promotes ads? Um, because like, don't get me wrong, like the majority of the ads that they want to block uh, totally makes sense to me. But some of them, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe they're trying to direct people towards uh, their style of ads as the biggest preference in blocking out other ad networks. Well, is there any doubt that that's the case? I think that's pretty much the whole point of this. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're using the Google Chrome browser, you're kind of drinking the Google Kool-Aid. <laughs> I was going to try and make a Google Kool-Aid joke, but it's not going to work. 
Double Density. Welcome back to Double Density, and we're going to continue with some tech news items of the week and some uh, tech exploration. So uh, something that you uh, and I want to both talk about for different reasons is the fact that uh, the HomePod is out in the wild in the States. It's uh, not out here in Canada for a little bit, but the reviews are in. It is a great stereo, um, but not without its hindrances. I like it that you called it a stereo, and it's in fact a mono speaker. A uh, binaural speaker or whatever. The HomePod. Stereo, not so stereo. I think it's going to bring up a resurgence of people having like uh, their own uh, hi-fi system in their like living room. I think there was kind of a loss of that. I remember going to people's homes and they all had their like nice little book sh- bookshelf speakers with their CD player and stuff. And um, I find that's kind of like a lost art at this point. I definitely agree with you. And that's why a couple of years ago, I bought a Sony stereo with an aux cord just so I could listen to music in that way without it sounding like tinny or thin or, you know, um, any other inconveniences that you have when you try to listen to it from a, a smaller source. Even some of the Bluetooth speakers, I'm not a huge fan of like the stereo bars that you can buy. Um, so I definitely do agree with you that that uh, is bringing music back in vogue. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, that sort of... Um, I don't know, practice, I guess, or hobby would be uh, reintroduced to people, right? Because I think it's right. I, I think it has skipped, uh, not necessarily generation, but at least a couple of years worth of, of people. Yeah, like in, in my house, I have a few different options where I can plug in some music. So I have, obviously, my Google Homes, which we discussed a few times. My Mac actually has really good sounding speakers. I have an excellent JBL. I guess it's called a Jambox or something. I don't know. It's a really good Bluetooth speaker. That's what I use primarily when I exercise. But in my basement, I have uh, a 250-watt PA system by Fender that I, I plug my uh, my keyboard in and uh, my bass. Or I have a 100-watt Marshall amp that I could have plugged, if I really wanted to go crazy, plug in an iPhone into that and see what happens. I do believe that is the very definition of overkill for what you want. Yes, my 250-watt PA system I think would be a bit uh, much. Uh, and I think the neighbors would not really appreciate it. I feel like your family would also get mad at you because they're already mad at you that you're doing a podcast. So, yeah, uh, just before we started recording, I was testing my microphone and levels, and my daughter came downstairs to scold me that I was too loud and she couldn't sleep. <laughs> uh, Angelo Fiorentino, family man, Brian Hasty, vagabond. Uh, further than that, though, about the HomePod, though, so, um, you and I got to talking about something very interesting that, like, you sort of get locked into a series of services with the HomePod that, um, it's kind of something new for Apple because they've sort of uh, bent a little bit in terms of the apps that they allow on their uh, iPads, their computers, as well as their phones. But now for the first time, you have to be locked into um, Apple produced apps and settings in order to get the full HomePod experience. Yeah, another good article from The Verge, this time by Vlad Savoff and um the headline is, you know, the HomePod is the point of no return for Apple fans. This speaker is openly hostile to any hardware or service that is not made by Apple. I find that The Verge likes to use the word hostile often when it comes to uh, Apple products. When they removed the headphone jack, uh, Nilay Patel said it was a user hostile decision. I wouldn't call it hostile, but yeah, the HomePod, unless you're totally in the Apple ecosystem, is really not for you. There's no point in getting one if, for example, you're a Spotify customer because, yes, you'll get the great sound of the HomePod, but it defeats the whole purpose of being able to tell your speaker to play certain songs when you really can't. Right, and I think it's it's really just uh, 
Apple's big gamble, I think, of trying to win people over wholly to their ecosystem. Uh, I mean, like in the past, um, they've sort of said, hey, we have a preference for these things. But I think this is the first time where they really put that line in the sand. They said, you know what, if you want to get the full features, you'll have to get Apple Music. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. They they're really pushing Apple Music with this. And the thing is, Apple Music can't really be making them that much money. Uh, We all know Spotify doesn't make uh, much money for Spotify. Uh, I'm actually surprised they've lasted this long uh, because a music streaming service isn't really much of a money-making thing, whereas Apple, they don't really care that much if they're losing much money on Apple Music. They're still gaining a lot more money by selling iPhones, and the convenience of having Apple Music on your iPhone is a huge bonus to iPhone users, and they're hoping that what we're at 30 million subscribers now for Apple Music. We're getting up there pretty quickly. 30 or 40 million was the last time. Obviously, Spotify has 70 million paying customers, of which you're one of them, right? Yeah, I totally am. Uh, And I think uh, to that point, too, something you do forget is that there is a free Spotify tier with ads, right? So I think that like they generate, I don't know how much revenue, but I imagine they generate uh, a little bit of revenue that way in order to keep the lights on over at Spotify Inc., yeah, and Apple Music does not have any um, free tier at all with no ads or anything. It's just you get a free month and then or free three months actually with Apple Music. I pay $15 for Apple Music because I have the family account, which is great. Uh, we actually use it quite a bit. The other day I was vacuuming with some music in my ears. My wife was dusting with her Bluetooth speaker playing and my daughter had some music playing in her room and my son was watching Netflix. So we were all doing our parts too. Uh, take care of the house and listen. And to they Apple say music. that communication is dead. Well, what are you, what are you going to do when, when we're cleaning the house, the kids don't really want to talk to us. So it's, you should lecture them, Angelo, it's lecture actually, them about the virtues of Apple. So my kid, my son, especially really looks forward to us vacuuming. Cause it's pretty much the only two hours or an hour and a half he ever gets with the iPad throughout the week. He doesn't really get to play with the iPad much at all, except that time when we're vacuuming and he can't really be in the living room playing with his toys because we're making too much noise. So he goes in his room and and watches Netflix on his iPad. He didn't do anything special on the iPad. He just watches Netflix. Uh, but he still uh, is not being lectured by you. And I'm disappointed that you're not taking the time to uh, inform him of your worldview, as it were. But that's besides the point. What we really want to be talking about is how Apple is kind of locking you into this HomePod uh, and their own ecosystem by buying the HomePod because you're kind of stuck using Apple Music and all that. And it kind of brings up a bigger point of are we getting locked into these different ecosystems around like, you know, the Amazons and Googles and Apples are, are you playing in different ecosystems? Are you kind of just tied into one thing and that's it? That's all. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Brian? I do believe that we are heading towards an era of tribalism, a uh, tech tribalism, whether or not it's forced uh, is another question entirely. But I do believe that we are heading towards this place where you do have to have the full spectrum of Apple or Google or Amazon products in order to have home cohesiveness. As we continue forward uh, through time and all of these little gadgets end up in our homes, uh, we will be forced to pick a side or you know pick a team, a tech team uh, in order for everything to work uh, in synchronicity. You think so? I don't know. I think we'll be able to go on and not be completely tied into one. So, like, for example, I I use Gmail and I use um, the, like, Google Docs and all that stuff because Apple has some, but they're complete garbage. 
uh, I don't know if I've ever tried using iWork uh, for like Teams or whatever. It's not good at all. But obviously, Google Docs is fantastic. We're using it right now uh, as we discuss the show. This is where we do our show notes. They're all there. We share them. It's super easy to share. Uh, we use Google Drive to share our files together. So, But there's no way I would be using a Chromebook. I can't move from like the Mac to having just completely shifted over to Google. So I, I see myself using a, a mix of the different services. I hardly use anything by Microsoft unless you count like Word, but that's at work. Right. Um, uh, on the flip side of the coin, though, like, I mean, the recent Google ver- versus Amazon thing about YouTube uh, is kind of indicative about how companies treat each other. So I do think uh, we will be seeing more of those scuffles um, in the future when they realize that they can um, get locked into things. I do think that, you know, there is no Apple equivalent to YouTube as of yet. But if there were to be, I think they'd be the first to wall off their Apple garden in order to make sure that you're on there. Apple's at a bit of an advantage here, right? Because they can kind of get away with stuff that Google and Amazon, and they can't really because Apple has a huge market share with their iPhones in terms of smartphones. And obviously Google wants to be on all the smartphones, whereas Apple, they really don't care uh, if they're on uh, not on other phones. The thing is, is like, for example, Apple Music, you can get it on an Android phone. Uh, I'm I'm kind of surprised they don't let you get it on their Google Home, though. Like, I have a Google Home. I'd love to be able to put Apple Music on there, but I can't. So I'm kind of surprised by that, though. Um, their video service that might be coming out soon, that's going to tank if they don't let it on to everything. Yeah, I do think that their market share, while um, larger, isn't in a place where it's dominant enough for them to dictate how the market's going to go either, right? So that's a very good point. I just, as much as I want to believe that, like, we're all going to share in you know these resources i do think the second anyone figures out how to take advantage of their own proprietary app or their own proprietary service or something that gives them the edge they're going to go ahead and do that and make that an exclusive um i think it's only a matter of time unfortunately well yeah like you said we've seen that happen with google and amazon we've seen it happen with apple and amazon where the prime app wasn't available on apple tv and now that it's out it's not very good apparently i don't use amazon prime so i don't know uh if it's as bad as they say it is, but it's essentially just like a web app on Apple TV and doesn't even use many of the conventions that the Apple TV apps are supposed to be using. Right. And I I do think that like, as I was just saying, continuing to the future, I think unfortunately a lot of these skirmishes uh, will occur on electronic turf uh, and the battlegrounds will be the things that we have bought from these companies, unfortunately. Yeah. Right? So like not only are we paying for these services and uh, these physical objects, but we're also uh, letting companies uh, wage uh, electronic war with each other uh, through them, which is kind of unfortunate considering that like, the user or, you know, the buyer, you know, is the person who's dictating how things are going to go with their money to a certain extent. But uh, otherwise, it's what you're allowed to get control to on your phone, your home assistant, your computer, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do when it uh, when the HomePod does come out here, because I'm I'm really happy with the Google Home. It works really well. It does everything that I needed to do in terms of getting quick answers, playing some music for me. But um the way the Google, the, the Apple HomePod sounds apparently is really good. And it would make a nice addition to my living room as long as I don't put it on anything uh, that's made of wood. Oh, so we're going to get into this this week. All right. Okay. Uh, so the HomePod uh, kind of damages your, some of your furniture if you don't want it. So a lot of people have commented on this and it's mind blowing that this got out of QA without Apple even mentioning something. Just so as an example, my 
my daughter has a bedroom set that actually came with a piece of paper that said, if you put anything uh, plastic or silicone on this furniture, it will damage it. And uh, she had a little radio that the little feet damaged some of the um, some of the, the finish on the furniture. So the furniture actually warned you. And now uh, once this came out, Apple put a warning on their website uh, on like the same section of where to clean the HomePod uh, to not put it on any wood surfaces. And so apparently somebody had asked what to do and Apple said, well, when in doubt, just refinish your furniture. Because clearly I have the disposable income to do all of those things. Thanks, Tim Cook. Yeah, I, I just, uh, they need to fix it. It's kind of dumb that this got past them. Uh, for now, just put it on top of your HomePad instructions that come in the bottom of the box. They'll look round and they're perfect. So just put them on top of that. <laughs> I like the idea of a self-sustaining uh, model like that. This may bring back doilies though. Ooh, yeah, good point. Uh, further to that though, do you feel like this is yet another stumble by Apple? Very minor stumble. It's not a... I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of pissed off furniture owners out there, I think, who didn't realize this and suddenly you got a nice big ring after a couple of days. Yeah, it's 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 dumb. Because like let's get things straight, right? Like you are very much in the know, so you're clearly going to not put this on a wood surface. But someone who's just an enthusiast who buys this doesn't necessarily do all the research in terms of all of the risks, and then soon enough they end up with this in the home, and then uh, their grandmother's antique chest is ruined. Thanks, Tim Cook. Well, I am in the know. The thing is, is let's say I would have got this day one, it would have gone on a piece of, of wood. So I don't like I would have ruined that wood, I guess. I don't know. It's it's kind of dumb that this happened. Apparently, they're not serious like stains. They do go away after a while. Apparently, it has to do with the oil in the wood and certain woods. Like, for example, if it's not if it's like a varnished wood, nothing will happen. But if it's like um, anything that's like uh, less treated wood, it has oil or something. Apparently, the silicone and the oil react. Silicone kind of absorbs it and then it goes into the wood. It's very odd. It's like a, it's, it has to do with chemicals, Brian. Chemicals, physics, reactions, all of these things. This might be the strangest double density PSA ever, but people, if you plan on buying a HomePod, treat your wood. Just go out there and get it varnished. Do it yourself. Spend a Saturday afternoon doing it. Or know? just put it on a doily. <laughs> or just don't buy a HomePod, you know, or just put it on another surface. Anyway, anything really. I think the HomePod is pretty cool. Uh, backing things up, though, uh, talking about tribalism uh, being locked into services, you clearly want to talk about the biggest thing in your life, which is bigger than your wife and your kids. We, of course, are talking about your famed photo collection, and you have some thoughts about uh, this uh, vis-a-vis uh, tribalism. Well, the, the photo collection is of my family, so it's kind of uh, pertains to them. And th- yeah, you, we had mentioned that... Uh, you like I use different things and for my photos I have it like that's the last thing I want all my eggs in one basket right so I my main collection as we've discussed is my iCloud photo library which uh to the great excitement of Brian a few weeks ago I mentioned that I had finally downloaded everything and have the entire photo library on one hard drive which for a while I hadn't done that Um, but I also have them all in Google Photos and okay. I also have just regular old-fashioned images and no proprietary library as JPEGs on an external hard drive or three. Question for you. Do you have this at the bank? No. 
is that a logical next step for you? Because I feel like it might be like we may launch a GoFundMe for the podcast just so you can save your photos at the bank. Well, it's too much work to put it at the bank, right? Because you have to have two hard drives that you keep switching out of the bank and they're going to think you're crazy if you keep showing up at a at a bank with hard drives. They're going to think you're some sort of... Are you kidding me? You're... Uh, you'd be the ideal dude to do this. You call it crazy, but it's a logical next step for your uh, obsession with your photos. Well, there's a count that I do 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 this already, but it's not the bank and I have an, I have an external hard drive at my office. Right. And uh, what happens? Well, I guess that's a very good point. I guess the bank, your office, it's all the same thing in the end. It's an, it's an outside source for you to save your photos that is not the cloud. Yeah. The thing is, is iCloud is relatively safe. Google, I mean... I guess if aliens invade, they would like EMPS and then the clouds would be kind of useless. So, but I think that would be the least of our worries. <laughs> I like the idea that like, that's a top three for you though. It's like, got to protect my wife and kids. Got to make sure my home is stable. And oh yes, the photos, the saucer people cannot touch my photos. <laughs> um, so I linked you to an interesting article this week that's sort of related to all this about, uh, from the Washington Post about how these people's estimation, we've kind of reached peak smartphone in terms of, uh, where phones go. Uh, there's some interesting uh, news out there in terms of like, for the first time ever, uh, sales of smartphones have declined. Um, the average uh, user time with a phone has uh, gained a couple of months, right? So the idea of where we might be keeping our phones a little longer, uh, much more like a computer model instead of the traditional phone model, which we always want to replace very quickly. In the past, I'd say decade, computers have become uh, like almost like washing machines. They become an appliance in that uh, my last Mac I kept for almost eight years, and the one before that I'd had for four or five. Uh, but before that, I had changed computers every few years because, well, they would get so obsolete so quickly. Uh, the thing now with computers, especially with SSDs, uh, which was always the slowest part of your computer, your hard drive spinning up was the thing that took the longest, these computers can last relatively long. And we're seeing that starting to happen with smartphones. I don't think we've reached peak smartphone just yet. Um, it's it's just sort of leveled off now, but we don't know what's going to happen uh, if people are really going to keep holding on to their phone longer. Like my goal usually is two to three years for a phone. Uh, I had to change it more quickly in the past few years because of uh, other reasons, but the goal is usually two or three years for a phone. Um, I think the uh, the shortest I've ever gone is actually two years. Yeah, my phone's usually last uh, two to two and a half years. And I do think you make a very good point. There's no long-term data about this kind of thing. Um, you know, is the decline uh, a blip or is it uh, indicative of a larger trend of people holding onto their phones for longer? Uh, is something really interesting. I also think, too, um, something that you necessarily didn't address when you're talking about this is the user experience, right? So, like, there's less of a rush to update your phone. Uh, you know, back in the day when you wanted a faster computer, you swap out like a graphics card or got something bigger because you wanted to game, right? But now a lot of these apps um, have sort of leveled off in terms of like system usage. So I think it's less of a question of upgrading in order to use all these different apps and more so just um, a lot of other uh, secondary slash like a real life issues, like, you know, a cracked screen or a battery issue and less so about my phone can't run all of these apps. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, well, it's like going back to a regular PC or Mac. Like right now, what we're doing, we're running all kinds of, I'm running a few different things on this computer and it's hardly getting taxed by, by what we're doing. Whereas uh, if we would have tried this on a computer five or six years ago, no, not necessarily five or six years ago, but maybe 10 years ago, like my 
my iBook, let's say, my beloved iBook, it would have like caught fire at this point. If we're on Skype, we have documents open, we have all kinds of things running. The thing is, is now phones are getting at that point too, where they're not really being used too much uh, in terms of to their full capacity. The thing that helps phones is that you can't really have more than one app running at the same time. They, you know, iPhones say that they're, it's multitasking or whatever, but you're not really using two apps at the same time. It takes up the whole screen. So the other stuff gets frozen in the background and that's it. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is that it's just um, usage and uh, like battery life and things like that have sort of, as you're saying, leveled off. So it's less a question of uh, using a phone uh, to its maximum capabilities and more so uh, what is more attractive uh, in terms of getting a new phone. Do you really want to upgrade for the larger camera or the new emojis or, yeah. you know, or whatever, then like it's more so an aesthetic choice than a needed system choice. Yeah. The, the iPhone 10 this year was kind of neat in that it's a full screen, but uh, look, even a, a, an enthusiast like myself didn't really feel the need to wait and get the iPhone 10. I got an iPhone eight plus. I also think there's also a price point attached to it too, that uh, you're not ready to necessarily pay right at the gate either. Right. Especially in Canada for the iPhone 10. Absolutely. That was totally part of why I opted for the, the eight plus is that it was a full $300 cheaper. Plus I got a hundred dollar credit and, uh, yeah, that was totally worth it. But my iPhone 6s was actually fine. The battery was kind of going cause it needed to get changed, but it was working. Okay. And camera wise, it was fine uh, obviously the iphone 8 plus has an ex- amazing ca- uh, camera but nothing totally like changed my worldview <laughs> after getting the iphone 8 i feel like features will come less and less essential for a little bit of period of time for new phones uh, in terms of like the wow factor yeah face id apparently is a bit of a wow factor uh, people saying that after they've used it for a while they it kind of feels barbaric to actually have to press a button to turn on your phone but i don't know my, these look maybe call me like old-fashioned with these little tiny pocket computers that can do like pretty much everything are sort of impressive to me and with that uh we conclude the tech portion of this episode we're going to continue watching to see if this trend continues in terms of uh declining smartphone sales it's something that we'll definitely be interested in talking about in the future but uh, i will see you on the paranormal side of things yeah see you there what's the podcast find me a podcast Hey guys, it's TJ from the Pints and Puzzles podcast. You miss me to my dad. We explore some of the strange, unusual, and often obscure cases throughout history. But did I mention there's craft beer reviews? My dad shows the best. Come give us a listen on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So this week, we're going to do a couple of quick hits before getting into our main uh, story, which uh, is sort of related to something we talked about in the tech section, but not necessarily a uh, direct correlation. Uh, but <laughs> before we at all, actually, <laughs> but sort of. <laughs> but before we talk about that, uh, Bitcoin ruins everything, apparently, and that includes the search for alien life. So uh, we're going to link in the show notes to a Motherboard article all about how uh, cryptocurrency mining is so popular that it is uh, taking up a lot of the um, CPU space uh, that uh, organizations like SETI were using in order to uh, parse through information uh, looking for extraterrestrial life. Well, before we go on, shout out to the amazing Shutterstock image of the alien holding up like, what is that, Ethereum? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) One one of the Bitcoins. 
Yeah. Yeah, one of the cryptocurrencies, not Bitcoins. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's pretty funny. So there's a few things, right? It's it's taking away computer power from the SETI at home, but they're also buying up all the GPUs. And that's actually important to uh, SETI. So there's like two SETIs here. There's the, the SETI project and uh, the, the SETI Institute. SETI Institute. I didn't realize they were two totally separate things. Yeah, so uh, the one I'm more familiar with is the SETI Institute. So that's uh, Seth Shostak, et cetera, et cetera, uh, who is quoted in the article actually uh, uh, saying that within two dozen years, we're going to find some form of extraterrestrial life. But those darn kids, and I'm paraphrasing here, are uh, stealing up all of our computing powers. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that uh, we're trying to mine for these. I don't want to say they're silly. I guess it's like a weird fad. We're going through like I had heard about Bitcoin years and years and years ago. I guess I should have invested in it when it was super cheap. But uh, hindsight, twenty twenty, should have bought Apple stock in two thousand two. We both goofed on that one. Yeah, you should have uh, spent your money on Apple stocks instead of Alana's bootlegs. But hey, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not judging old Angelo here. I think you are, but it's okay. Speaking of judging people, though, uh, another time traveler has appeared in our timeline, and uh, he's from twenty thirty, and. Uh, uh, he's passed a lie detector test. Now we have to preface everything with like, of course, lie detectors aren't absolute truth responders. They are a measure of how much you believe what you are seeing. Yeah, actually, a couple of weeks ago, there was a funny discussion on Twitter uh, between a bunch of uh, paranormal podcast uh, hosts talking about uh, how he can pass a lie detector test. And I remember from years and years ago, there was a TV show, I think it was with John Ritter, and he played a cop. I think it was called Hooperman or something. This is a long time ago. And in one of the episodes, this guy kept passing a lie detector test. Or it, was, it kept being uh, inconclusive, but it uh, came out that he had a tack in his shoe, and he kept stepping on it so it would mess up the results. That is one way of doing it. And then another thing came out is that you can uh, tighten your sphincter and pass a lie detector test. That tidbit, I think, came from uh, our friend Adam at Graveyard Tales. That is a weird thing to give credit for, I think. Anyways, this <laughs> is a, a weird digression to the topic at hand. So yeah, this uh, time traveler from 2030 is calling himself Noah. He claims that humans will land on Mars in 2028. He also claims that Donald Trump will get reelected. And uh, yeah, there's just a bunch of claims that he's made that are... Um, very interesting. I guess we'll see uh, how that plays out. Uh, he looks like a younger man. And of course, his face is blurred on the YouTube video. So uh, he's 50 years old, according to this. But he's taken a drug that makes him look like he's 25. Perfect. I love the future where we're going to land on Mars. AI is going to kill us. Uh, you know, Donald Trump gets reelected, et cetera, et cetera. I'm looking forward to a future filled with that kind of stuff. It's very strange, but he'll probably be proven wrong uh, in the near future. Speaking of things, I just keep, you know, we keep relating things to what we just said. We got a good flow going here on this episode. The two of the Stars Academy, which has been, uh, I don't want to call it one of our favorite punching bags, but certainly a uh, one of the things uh, or centers we've loved to question the most its, its inception and its revelation a couple of months ago. Those famous videos that they released uh, have actually been around for a while. Um, they just haven't been uh, shown on such a, a large platform. Yeah, well, so the thing is, is we had kind of talked about the Nimitz one a while ago and we had linked to an article from the mid 2000s about it and but it kind of kind of really came out with the New York Times article but now there's an article in Wired that's sort of questioning the like chain of custody of these videos and where they came from and the provenance and we're not so sure what they are and who they're from and 
they may not have actually ever really been classified. Right. There's the whole question of chain of custody with these videos, right? And the thing is that, like, no one's quite sure uh, whether or not these were actually ever classified at one time. Well, that, that's the thing. Then that makes it is that is that an important point? Does it change what they show? The thing is, is I don't know. In my opinion, they kind of show a whole lot of nothing, really. It's kind of like people freaking out over something. Maybe. I'm not sure. They need a lot more uh, scrutiny. Hopefully, people don't really pass this guy off as being a cynic. It's an interesting article. It's in Wired. Go take a look. Yeah, I think it's a really good article in that it lays out the groundwork for trying to sort of... uh explore these videos within a larger context and historical context, uh, not just with the to the stars and Luis Elizondo, but, you know, kind of looking at the, where they've come from as well as, you know, whether or not they were um, government secrets let loose somehow. Yeah. It's, we just don't know who released them. That's the thing. It's, they're saying they're from the department of defense, but they may have come from somewhere else. It kind of worries, not that it worries me, but it, it, it kind of, cast a shadow on it a little bit in that they're being sort of shady about where these things came from. And uh, we're not so sure that they came from the Department of Defense. Apparently, for example, one of the things they say is that normally these videos are tagged with um, pre-roll and post-roll for the footage sort of of explaining where they're from, but these weren't. Now, it could easily be that the Two Stars Academy edited that out but they really shouldn't have no for sure i think that leads uh, leads a lot of legitimacy uh one of my favorite points of the article is it actually links to that annie jacobson book area 51 talking about uh some of the historical context by which the uh public would be perceived to act where uh extraterrestrial or, or alien information were to be released saying that they are in fact a real thing so i think that's kind of interesting as a side note uh maybe we'll get to talking about that book more in depth sometime soon i promise i'll have it read by episode 51 <laughs> I sure hope so. Uh, but yeah, anyways, if you want to take a look, the Wired article is in the show notes. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts uh, about this. Uh, so you can go ahead and tweet at us at double underscore density. Facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. And you could also reach us at double density.net. Go ahead and click the contact button as some of you already have. And it's super exciting. Yeah. And like, I don't want to come off as sounding like a naysayer about these tapes. They're, they're still pretty interesting, I guess. It's just, it's hard to make out what's being seen. And something that I found interesting is that they also said that it might not even the, the the audio that's linked with the video might not be related, which is sort of hmm. odd. So I hmm. hope that's not the case. Like a fabrication. Yeah, I hope that's not the case because that would really uh, it brought some people um, interest in this topic. And if that comes out, it really really sets us back a lot. You've, popular ufology is just a real big game of uh, deception, misinformation, and it's something that we. Uh, I'll accuse each other of quite literally on the uh, recent Our Strange Guys uh, book club podcast. Yeah, we're, so, we're all disinformation agents on that. Yeah, and uh, I'm willing to admit that I lie and deceive people on a regular basis in terms of the topics of ufology. I know way more than I'm supposed to. Humble brag. Do you know? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm just trying to create an aura of mystery on me. It's not really working out here. Let me workshop it. I'll come back in a couple of weeks with a better persona. Uh, hashtag release the Donkey Kong tapes. I feel is very relevant to this conversation too. Yeah. You, you posted that and hopefully it'll start taking off a little bit more than it has. I also feel like it, it ties into the whole uh, Pentagon uh, videos too. Hopefully. Do you think they've framed poor Billy Mitchell? You know what? You know what, Angelo? 
I'm kind of into that, but uh, I think that might be a topic for another podcast. Uh, let's get into the main uh, meat and potatoes of this one. So we mentioned rings before, rings that are left over by something that got placed on a surface it shouldn't have been on, I guess. And uh, tonight we'll be talking about a different type of ring, uh, the Delphos ring, which is up there with one of my favorite UFO stories. I hadn't really heard about it much until just a few years ago, and then in some podcasts uh, I've heard talk uh, talk about it. And uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, one of the few real like close encounters of the second kind that are that I know. There's a few other ones, and we've discussed some of them on the show, but this one is kind of like pretty crazy. I'm going to preface this by I haven't actually done any research on this. I was too busy watching the three ring movies because that's what I figured we were talking about and you misinformed me. Uh, So therefore, we're going to see where this episode goes, but I am very willing to talk about ring, ring two and rings uh, at any time now. Okay, so there's no weird, creepy little girl. Okay, good to know. It's about uh, Ronnie Johnson and his dog. Firstly, like, let me just preface this by the Delphos ring sounds like a really cool space station. <laughs> it actually does, uh, but it's not a space station, unfortunately. No, it's just a town in Kansas. Well, yeah, the, the Delphos is a town in Kansas. The ring is what was left over uh, by what Ronnie Johnson saw that day, uh, which was this weird mushroom-shaped object. And he saw this thing. And one of the things that caught me right away about this story is that what's something that people always say about UFOs? There's a lot of things. Uh, they float around. They float around. Uh, the saucer shaped. And what do people hear? What do people hear when they see a UFO? Uh, some kind of hum or nothing, depending. Exactly. Well, this one was not silent at all, and it was loud. It sounded like a washing machine, apparently. So that's the thing. I love how stuff has changed over the years in terms of like we've talked about the technology of aliens and stuff changing. Um, or if it's just us perceiving them differently. But this one was a mushroom-shaped object, which is also something that doesn't seem to come up that often. It wasn't silent at all. It was about 9 by 10 feet. And it kind of hovered off the ground for what he felt was five minutes. And it was really colorful. And then it made a rumbling noise. It came became more high-pitched, and it just took off. He managed to get his parents to come and see it. Uh, apparently his parents had been calling him for half an hour. So it was longer than the five minutes that he felt it was. Uh, so there's some missing time in there as well, which is kind of fun. And when it did take off, he was he was blinded by the light. And then I can't say that without saying revved up like a deuce, another runner in the night. <laughs> I'm doing a podcast with a dad. <laughs> Anyways, yes, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he, it really did blind him, though. He had a lot of trouble seeing after it. And uh, when his parents came out, it was still kind of in the sky, but they noticed this ring it had left on the ground and it was glowing. And of course, what do you do when this weird object leaves a glowing ring? You touch the, you touch, you it. touch it, you, you touch, touch it. it. Yeah, that's what you do. So Mr. and Mrs. Johnson both touched it and it made their hands numb. And Mrs. Johnson rubbed the dirt off on her thighs and her thighs felt numb. And now there were conflicting reports. Some said they were numb for a few days And I watched this weird, uh, well, weird. It was an old thing from the History Channel. And at the end, they mentioned she felt that numb sensation for the rest of her life, which kind of find hard to believe. But Uh, one important thing you failed to mention was that uh, Ron Johnson was out there with his dog. No, I mentioned he was there with his dog. Okay, this name, Snowball. You forgot the dog's name. The best part about the name is is the name Snowball. So I think that's the most important part of this whole story. But uh, (laughs) I digress. Snowball's the dog also from 
The Simpsons? No. That's Santa's little helper, Snowball's the cat. Yeah, the cat, the cat. I haven't watched The Simpsons in a long time. Really showing your age out here. So yeah, the so this happens in November uh, 1971. And um, the ring persists to exist uh, throughout the winter and it's melting snow. It's like, it's kind of its own little tiny uh, fortress unto itself, <laughs> right? Because like, the, the, the conditions of around Delphos are, you know, classic winter stuff. But yet for this diameter, uh, this circular place, it, it's completely different. They did take a picture of it right away. They had a Polaroid camera. They took a picture and they called the local newspaper and somebody came over the next day and they found, they showed interest in it. They had the police come. They took actual soil samples. Apparently there was this crusty white substance on top of the soil and the ring itself was hydrophobic. So anything water related would kind of be uh, repelled. And that's the thing when um, a few weeks later, um, our friend and yours, uh, Jalen Heineck sent uh, Ted Phillips there to get some uh, soil samples and he had it analyzed and it was strange. They found some strange things that shouldn't have been there. There was some weird bacteria uh, and fungus. Jacques Vallée also uh, had the soil analyzed and I'll let you say what they found. Uh, they found a substance uh, called actinomycetales, um, which is a, a weird bacteria or fungus. Um, but the weird thing is that like it's it was like a mutation of it. It wasn't necessarily just uh, like a regular strain of it. And uh, in doing uh, research on this bacteria or fungus, they had realized that there was an intense source of heat or um, some kind of energy which had morphed it uh, into its current state. Yeah, that's one of the possibilities. The thing is, is that as interesting as this case is, there's a few things that do uh, bother me about it and uh, I'm not sure if you'll feel the same way alright let's hear this okay well first let, let's get the the annoying one out of the way is that uh, everyone's favorite skeptic Philip Class did take a look at this case and he thought that the ring in the ground was a result of a water trough that had been used by sheep in the location and the main reason it caused the ring is that the sheep were urinating around the trough uh, which caused a circle. I find that a little far-fetched as well. It's like the, the the sheep peeing in a perfect circle, which is kind of odd. It would also have to be like, yeah, like the perfect storm of all of these things coming together in the right place, right? And like the idea that um, sheep urine would then form in that way uh, without being easily washed away, I find is kind of weird. Yeah. The thing is, something that does bother me though, it's not that. It's that they really were excited to call the local newspaper, right? They took a picture and all the stories I read on this mentioned that he called the local newspaper right away and they came the next day. And then later on, they actually won an award for best UFO sighting of the year from the National Enquirer. For five, they won $5,000 for that. Okay, so I, I, I'm going to hop in on this one at this point, I think. So... I don't want to defend these people because I don't know them personally, but like I can maybe understand the mindset of wanting uh, this on the record somehow, right? That they've dealt with this. And the best way to do that is to go to a place like a, a news outlet and have someone else other than the family record this incident and, and sort of explore it. Right. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I, I, and I understand it's just, I don't know. It bothers me that they kind of 
took advantage of seeing this thing and, and got some money out of it. You mean like anyone who's ever been to a, a guest at a UFO convention? I guess. But like a lot of these UFO sightings, they don't really try to get money out of it most of the time. Uh, I don't, I hadn't done any reading into the National Enquirer Prize. So was it something that they had to apply for? Yeah. So actually, J. Allen Hynek headed up the, the, the team that g- gave them the award for best UFO case. Okay. And then a few people on that committee, at least one of them, I can't remember which one, mentioned that he kind of regretted saying that that was the best UFO case because they seemed so eager to like get that prize. If you're living in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, $5,000 for something you live through, I think is kind of uh, worthwhile, but that's just me. Yeah. Again, I don't want to just use that against it because everything else is super interesting about the case. There is trace evidence. There is like a tree was cracked uh, that where the UFO hit it. Uh, the dog went like acted really strange for quite a while. All the sheep started acting really weird. Uh, So there's a lot of other things apart from that prize. So like, I don't want to just make that the one thing that throws this in the garbage. It, it can be something interesting that happened there. It kind of sort of reminds me of the Lonnie Zamora case, but not as much. That was more like a, there were people with that one that came out of the UFO, right? Right. But I think also the, the way in which it would remind me of the Lonnie Zamora case is the change in natural settings and natural surroundings, right? Like the, the glass stuff. Oh yeah. And, and so instead of like a white crusty thing, it left like glass in the sand almost. Right, because there's another instance of some kind of heat or power source um, igniting or, you know, changing um, the surroundings there too, right? It wasn't just, you know, the car being harmed. It was also like the physical soil being changed due to some kind of um, pressure. Yeah, and there was another um, thing I'd read about this, though, that could have changed the the actual area there is that, um, like Philip Class had said, it was uh, sheep there. Neighbors had said for the longest time around there there had been a chicken coop where the chickens were around in a circle as well. So that's something else. No. So that, you know, and chicken poop and all that stuff could have also affected and caused the uh, organism that we cannot name. Uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but this sounds like the perfect fecal stew. Yuck. Dad joke by Brian. <laughs> <laughs> we're uh so for those keeping score in this episode we are one to one we are tied um another incident that we have talked about in the past that reminds me of was the val johnson incident right so the guy who um part of uh one of the minor storylines in fargo season two is based on is this guy who sees a beam and then he's unconscious and he wakes up and his car uh is like the windshield shattered etc cetera, etc cetera, right? and there's like another um way in which there has been like a physical uh consequence to seeing some kind of object yeah i like that case too and that's another one of these close encounters of the second kind where there's some sort of physical evidence although that i guess is less of a close encounter of the second kind right i i would constitute the um lonnie zamora case and this delphos ring as a true close encounter a second time where a second time of a second kind where there's a trace evidence. Whereas this, it was just the car having been smashed. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, the changing in physical settings, I think adds more weight to uh, these two incidents in particular. He was also blinded though, from what I understand, uh, like Ronnie Johnson, uh, he had been blinded by the light. I'm not going to say the rest of the lyrics. And he had, uh, what was called welder's eye or something like that. Welder's blindness. Well, firstly, thank you for not quoting uh, Bruce Springsteen. That's great. Uh, 
Secondly, I do. It's very interesting because, yeah, he was blinded. And, you know, there's that also like that physical change um, that some people um, seem to go through when like there's an intense light or something, right? Like the partial blindness or even um, in certain other cases, you know, like there, there are burns on the body that are akin to radiation um, uh, complications without the radiation. Oh, yeah. Sort of like the, the cash line room case. Yeah, exactly. Where there's like physical uh, demarcations of the body, right? So thankfully for for Ron Johnson and for Snowball, uh, these were temporary. Like, I don't know if the dog was blinded, but I don't uh, think he's still alive. The dog. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point. Is I don't think we can ask the dog, right? We can get the time travel from 2030 to get us back there, though. It's 1971, and we can ask him there. I don't know. Let's find out. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, But yeah, I. uh, you know, you were talking before about the National Enquirer Prize, and a lot of the times we talk about the witness credibility, right? And I think that we talked recently um, with Rob and Sam from Not Alone and Former Strange Guys about the idea of you need to investigate the incident and not the person, right? And that's something that Phil Klaus is famous for doing is questioning people's motives instead of, you know, looking at the evidence um, as it stands. And I do think that, like, this is a kind of extraordinary case in the fact that, like, um, I don't think that these people had the capability to, one, create this or two, um, uh, help or have a helping hand in uh, instigating any of this, right? They're just, I think that like they are people who unfortunately uh, live through something that um, is very hard to explain and mutations that have yet to be fully explained either, right? Well, I'll explain why I don't think the National Enquirer Prize should be held against them. I don't think at the time of this event that was a thing. that They won that prize later on, from what I understand. So I don't think it was a motivating factor. I do think they probably saw something, uh, and then they just ended up winning a prize. And I don't want to be a skeptic like Philip Class, where I just kind of attack the person and question the credibility, because from what I understand, the um, sheriff and undersheriff that handled this case held these people in the highest regard. They were like pillars of the community. They were not liars. They were not people that would come out with any sort of crazy tall tale. So that's something that does keep this case really interesting all these years later. I mean, apart from that too, apart from the $5,000, they really haven't tried to promote or um, exploit the incident as far as I could tell further along, right? Like I was, I was joking before about people who do conventions and get um, paid to be there or, you know, get to sell their wares or whatever. And I don't think it's necessarily a case of that in, in this instance, right? So it kind of lends itself to the idea that like they did live through um, this. And while like we're not trying to investigate the people, I, I do think that like part of it is looking at motives and looking at um, possibilities of a hoax, right? And, and the thing is, like, you got to dig into the human element for a bit. And, and the case was investigated by some top-notch uh, UFO investigators. Jalen Hynek was sent out Ted Phillips, who is, like, meticulous in the way he handles trace evidence. Now, I have some problems with his Marley Woods evidence, which we may come across. I guess we'll talk about it one day. I don't know if you know about Marley Woods, but it's sort of kind of like another Skinwalker Ranch type area where it's these weird things that are happening. And nobody... Um, I'm not sure if the actual, it's not called Marley Woods. That's what he calls it. I don't know if that's, that area has ever, ever actually been explained to be where it is. Um, if it is, I don't know. Do you know? No, I, I don't know much about this case, actually, to be very honest with you, but it's something that I would definitely be interested in looking into. Yeah, he has a lot of evidence, a lot of like weird uh, beings that he's seen at this Marley Woods, but um, he always talked about releasing this evidence, and he never has, um, as far as I know. But if there's any listeners that know if he has and has this has links to it and stuff, please send them to us. Uh, you know where to get us. But Ted Phillips, very good investigator, always meticulous. So I, I tend to kind of trust 
that he's looking into this properly and not making things up. The fact that Jacques Vallée also had it analyzed, and there, those weird organisms they found are strange to be there. They should, they don't belong there. Is it possible that uh, animals roaming around that area in a circle could have caused that? Maybe, especially. The only thing I can see that causing that being a circle like that would be uh, like that mentioned where neighbors had said there was a weird, there was um, a, a chicken coop in a circle around there. Like that definitely would have caused it. The sheep, not so much. Right. But the idea behind that too is that it's both um, uh, animal uh, remains, but uh, there was a lot of heat associated to the area too, right? In order to mutate this. So while class A all um, sort of have this explanation of, oh, it's the animals, um, that doesn't account for the way in which the mutation uh, came to be based on the analysis of the you know, the white substance. No, it's not like Ronnie Johnson was out there with a hairdryer, like blow drying the, the ground. Yeah. Or flame throwing things around, uh, pre Elon Musk. Yes. I was going to say he got himself a boring company, uh, flamethrower from the future. No, <laughs> went back to 1971 as well. We've tied it all together here, guys, over the course of a few episodes. I think it's time to call it quits then in that case. Yeah. So what do you, th- before we do though, what do you think about this case? It's something that you seem to not have been super familiar with. No, before I started doing research and of course I was kidding about only uh, watching the movie rings. Um, I think people I figured found this that super I fascinating. people have you figured out by now, Brian, that you're uh, very much a trickster. Uh, although I did have uh, a friend of mine mention recently that you're kind of mean to me for a couple of episodes. Yeah, well, it's it's a persona, right? This is kind of like audio wrestling a little bit. Yeah, he is, he was, uh, you don't want to get, uh, what's the term, kayfabe? Yeah, exactly. We don't want to break kayfabe here on the Double Density Podcast because this is clearly the number one place for uh, all sorts of kayfabe. We, yeah, we. I wasn't here. We mentioned uh, uh, John Cena. I was on uh, Rob's show. We mentioned John Cena. Yeah, you can't see me. Uh, what do I think of this case? I think it's a very interesting case. I think the physical remains uh, do attribute a lot of uh, credence to this case. The way in which the family um, comported themselves, I think, is only natural given the fact that they weren't in a major metropolitan area. And like, uh, I, when I was doing research for this case, I was trying to put myself in their shoes, right? And, and I would have done the exact same thing. I would have gotten some kind of media outlet to come and sort of document it better than I could have, right? Because of the time apart from a camera or maybe you know if you have film in a uh, film camera like a motion picture camera then like that's great but you don't have access to a lot of those things especially you know in the early 70s so it's great to have um, that on the record I guess so I kind of understand their motivations for doing that as well as um, the way in which they held themselves too. what's frustrating is that this doesn't seem to happen anymore now that we everybody like you know Ronnie his mom and his dad would all out of like their phones out filming this I liked all the little details of the case um he was there with his dog. He saw this mushroom-shaped thing. It was not silent. sounded like a washing machine. It was super colorful. It like hovered off the ground for a while. There was really bright lights after, and then it just took off with a high-pitched sound, um, a blinding light for him. And then his parents came out. It was all these details are kind of interesting in that they were all retained and uh, they weren't changed with, uh, they didn't have any changing stories. They always maintained the same story, which I kind of appreciate that in these types of cases where there is a bit of doubt that can possibly be so. Oh, for sure. And I think too, the way that the townspeople spoke about them, especially like the sheriff and um, some of the highway patrolmen, just in the way in which they described the, the incident, as well as like the way that the Johnsons comported themselves, I think adds a lot of credibility to the case too. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's a really interesting um, CE too. And I think that like, uh, 
it is one of the rare ones where, yeah, there is that r- remaining physical evidence that stayed for at least, a, you know, at least a couple months, if not longer. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. And then um, Bruce Springsteen wrote a song about it. And then he, he, uh, he sure did, Angelo. He, uh, well, look, if you look at the lyrics, he was blinded by the light, revved up like a deuce, another runner in the night. Like that perfectly describes a UFO. It revved up yeah, and yeah, then ran, I, uh, ran off in the night. I'm going to let you have this one, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I guess we'll go ahead and link to the Manfred Mann version of the song because that's the one that everyone knows as we end episode 44 of the Double Density Podcast. Tune in next week as we uh, throw out the script and do something a little special that we, we won't get into um, right now. But suffice it to say, we're planning on this right now, and I'm very excited to unleash this upon the world, and I think you are too. The problem is, is that whenever you say, stay tuned next week, the thing you say is not true. It's always a lie, but this time it's true in that uh, we're merging the worlds of tech and the paranormal in such a way that it's going to make for a very interesting um, discussion or dare I say even debate in some places. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Episode uh, episode 45 is going to yeah, be a good one. And it's, Brian's not making that up. That is actually what we have planned. Should I just lie and say, hey, tune in next week as we untangle UFO settings. Are they really just men looking for sugar in order to make extraterrestrial pancakes? Yes or no? Yes. I'm glad you've decided to firmly answer. Angelo, I'll see you next week. See you, Brian. Because the FBI told people not to buy them. I think they, they don't go to the FBI for the, the FBI. People don't go to the FBI. F- <laughs> people don't go. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> all right were you whistleblowing no, i got right there? something stuck in my throat